0: Okay, the paraphilic disorders uh, are a group of disorders that um, uh, if you're looking at my slides, Professor Mike's slides, uh, slide number 13, I kind of list there the um, the general overall characteristics, the general overall diagnostic criteria for all of the paraphilic disorders, essentially what they have in common. <clears throat> and there's three of them that, um, that they involve fantasies, urges, or behaviors, and that's gonna be different depending upon the particular uh, diagnosis, but, um, uh, that these um, fantasies, urges, or behaviors are relatively long-lasting, that is, they've been in place for at least six months, so not just a transient thing, uh, and also involving distress or impairment. Now, as I pointed out earlier, the um, uh, distress or impairment in the paraphilic disorders may be experienced by the person with the paraphilic disorder themselves, or maybe not. It may be that um, that their uh, victim uh experiences the distress or impairment. Um, <clears throat> let me go a little bit further into that. Um, <clears throat> uh, an example of a paraphilic disorder that um, that we'll look at is pedophili- pedophilic disorder, pedophilia, um, sexual attraction to prepubescent children. Um, a lot of times people with pedophilic disorder don't feel distress or impairment about their um, uh, attraction or even the behavior that would be involved with that. But their victims do, right? And um, it is possible, though, for the person with a uh, pedophilic disorder to feel distress or impairment. They may. Um, they may feel distressed about it. Um, but that's not necessarily um, a criterion for it being diagnosable uh, as a mental illness. It can go kind of either way on some of these. Many times, though, um, the pe- the person with the paraphilic disorder doesn't experience a lot of distress, but somebody else may. For the paraphilic disorders, these are patterns of, of deviant kinds of sexual fantasies, urges, or behaviors. They're statistically deviant, meaning that they are rare in the population. Thankfully, Um, uh, and they are also socially deviant. They go against uh, social norms, and you know, as I alluded to a minute ago, in a lot of cases, they go against laws. Uh, Many of these um, paraphilic, many of the behaviors that would be associated with paraphilic disorders are illegal, right? Sex with underage children, uh, looking at people who are naked and having sex when they don't consent to that, and, you know, stuff like that. Now, um, uh, there is an important... Um, but I think subtle change in the way the paraphilic disorders have been named in the DSM-5. Um, this, is, um, this is easy to miss, but I think it uh, has important kind of implications. Um, in the um, older editions of the DSM, previous uh, diagnostic system, DSM-4TR and before, um, the whole class of disorders here was referred to as paraphilias, not paraphilic disorders and the diagnoses were referred to as like exhibitionism, fetishism, fraturism, pedophilia and now they all are something ick disorder, exhibition is, I'm sorry, can't even say that, exhibitionistic disorder, fetishistic disorder, fraturistic disorder, um, uh, or fetishistic, yeah I said that already, uh, pedophilic disorder. Um, As I said, that may seem like a small difference, but I think it's an important one. It does put these diagnoses into the overall framework that the DSM uses for other disorders where it's identified that there is usually a normal range of some of these kinds of behaviors, um, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the very extreme end of where, you know, this is definitely deviant and causing problems for people. Um, As I say, this is... um, this is probably a useful and good kind of distinction from the DSM-5 because some of these uh, terms came to be used by people to describe uh, lesser degrees of uh, these kinds of behaviors. Like people may say something like they might describe themselves as an exhibitionist because they like to be seen or they like to show off their body or anything like that. Or people might describe other people as voyeurs because they like to watch a lot of porn, or something like that. And, and that's not really what we're getting at here with the paraphilic disorders. Um, so notice that that does allow for a more or less normal range of even sadism and masochism, um, but that um, here we're not talking about that. We're talking about uh, above and beyond that um, in the disordered range. A useful term for the, um, for the more normal range uh, of these kinds of behaviors is sexual variant, sexual variant that is um uh and that th- I use that term to describe when somebody has um an uncommon or unusual kind of sexual behavior that's outside of the norm but it's not necessarily problematic usually those kinds of things are going to be done occasionally and uh not going to be the person's primary mode of um sexual interest or satisfaction and so you know maybe a good example of that would be um bondage and domination play more simulated stuff uh, where it's done with ground rules and there's a safe word and, you know, a person might not actually even really be uh, tied up or something like that. And this is done for occasional fantasy purposes, right, Uh, in a sense. And so the term for that would probably be sexual deviant, I'm sorry, uh, sexual variant. Uh, Whereas for the diagnoses, we're talking about, well... For that example, we're actually talking about much worse stuff. Um, sexual masochism and sexual uh, uh, sadism um, involves some really um, awful stuff that I probably won't even give you examples of because it's so awful. But um, anyway, um, uh, all right, so um, so that is a useful difference in the way that these diagnoses are... Um, uh, are termed now. So notice that a person could be an exhibitionist but not have exhibitionistic disorder. A person could have a fetish but not fetishistic disorder, I guess, right? I mean, you know, uh, whatever. Um, <clears throat> uh, and so um, so these are much more extreme and uh, very often problematic. Um, let's see, when it comes to um, treatment for paraphilic disorders, um, you know, your textbook uh, seems to be much more optimistic about this than I am. Um, uh, I haven't found that, um, that uh, 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 I haven't really found much research to indicate that it's uh, very successful. I guess it depends on what your definition of success is. But um, <clears throat> uh, that um, many times people with paraphilic disorders, if they are in treatment, they're there because uh, they either got caught either by the law (laughs) or maybe by um, a friend or family member or marriage partner or something where the person says whoa you got to stop doing that or else we're through and so maybe the person doesn't really want to give up the behavior but they're in therapy anyway or something like that right so there's often um, you know a person's motivation to change is often low in um, the paraphilic disorders the other thing is that Uh, a lot of our understanding of paraphilic disorders does come down to two major components. One is hypersexual desire and the other is some learning experience. First off, hypersexual desire, that people with paraphilic disorders often have very high levels of sexual interest, um, you know, as measured by, you know, very high desired levels of sex, very high frequency of masturbation, very high frequency of um, uh, sexual fantasy, um, things like that, right? And the other part, um, that they experience something, that they learn something, right? Um, so some experience in life. I guess I'm just trying to speak generally here, but, um, uh, and so that, um, so that often by the time somebody with a paraphilic disorder is in treatment, they've had a long history of engaging in fantasy behavior, uh, uh those kind of things related to this particular paraphilia often accompanied almost always accompanied by sexual arousal and orgasm and sexual arousal in itself but also especially orgasm are highly reinforcing right and so um so yes, if we understand how behavior works, we can often um uh set Uh, situations to change that, but when you've got such a strong reinforcer and such a strong history, such a long history of reinforcement by orgasm, it's kind of hard to counter condition, uh, right? Uh, It's pretty challenging uh, to eclipse that. So, um... Uh, there are some uh, kinds of treatments that will address the hypersexual desire to try to reduce sexual desire. Um, And usually treatment will involve both of those aspects, right? Some way of trying to um, reduce sexual desire overall medically, uh, and also to, um, you know, do some sort of counter-conditioning. But it doesn't really work very well. The last thing I wanted to mention about the um, <clears throat> paraf- excuse me, about the paraphilic disorders in general is that you may have noticed in the, um, <clears throat> in the general criteria for the paraphilic disorders um, uh, a small but important word, fantasies, urges, or behaviors. <clears throat> or that or is important, it doesn't say fantasies, urges, and behaviors. Um, so notice that it would be possible for somebody to actually have a paraphilic disorder diagnosis even without ever acting on that behavior. Um, let's take pedophilic disorder as an example. It would be possible for somebody to have fantasies and urges that lasted over six months that caused them distress, uh, about, uh, sexual contact with prepubescent children, and perhaps this person never acts on it, but they could still get the diagnosis of pedophilic disorder. Now, um, uh, that is possible under the way the diagnostic system is set up. However, I'll tell you that, um, that in the real world, it doesn't happen very much that way. Uh, we don't have a lot of people diagnosed with paraphilic disorders, any kind of paraphilic disorders, who haven't engaged in the behaviors. There's two strong possibilities here. One is that, um, well, most people know that those kinds of uh, uh, fantasies and urges are... Um, deviant, and so they may be reluctant to report those to anybody. They're going to be likely to keep that to themselves and, uh, you know, not want to share that with anybody. that's a possibility. Um, The other is that um, for folks with these kind of fantasies and urges and hypersexual desire, often those fantasies and urges uh, seem to be so compelling that the person does act on the behavior. They may go through a time where they're trying to resist acting on the behavior, um, uh, but it seems that they do eventually uh, act on the behavior. Now, again, I I don't know if there's any clear way of knowing which one of those possibilities is the real truth. Is it that people are under-reporting fantasies and urges, or just not reporting? Or is it that when they have those fantasies and urges, they will almost always go on to offend or to act on those behaviors? Um, <clears throat> uh, I'm not sure if there's a way we can tell the distinction, but um, um, but it does seem that um, that for a lot of people they do have a very strong urge uh, to engage in the behavior, such that um, for some folks with paraphilic disorders, they get into kind of an obsessive-compulsive kind of cycle of things where they may even try to resist uh, engaging in these behaviors. Not necessarily because they think they're bad or wrong, but they know that they're, they, they're often criminal behaviors, right? And so they may try to resist it or try to control it, but then feel overwhelmed and go out and offend, right? Um, <clears throat> all right. Uh, paraphilic disorders.